Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. We're here in Matthew chapter number 6. I want you to take just a moment this morning and I want you to turn to Luke chapter 11. And if you have ribbons, these are, I, I enjoy when I purchase a Bible, make sure I have at least two ribbons. Uh, but if not, maybe you got a piece of paper and stick that in over Matthew chapter 11. And then I want you to stick another one in at 1 John. And I'm going to give you a challenge. A fourth one. Fourth one. And we need to stick in Romans chapter 7. But we're going to start here in Matthew. And then we're going to come back to Matthew. But I want to make some emphasis and I want you to be able to see them as the Lord speaks. This is word of God. And as we've read it just a moment ago, it's our job to receive it as such. And then as the preacher, as we get up to preach this morning, I want to preach what the Word says. And I want you to be able to just see these this morning. We're here in Matthew chapter 6. In particular, the theme that we've been looking at the last several weeks has been coming out of, really we've been in verse number 6 down to the text this morning, which is verse number 12. And the general thought, the, the overarching thought, if you will, has been on the doctrine of prayer. And by doctrine, we just mean the teaching of prayer. Uh, what God said about prayer. And prayer is a chief means that we have to communicate with God. And throughout the scriptures, more is said about prayer than is said about singing. So often, prayer is that area in our life as believers that we are sometimes least motivated to do. Uh, you know, I, I would think there's a number of times I'll, I'll just be moved and well, there's a song that I might be playing on my, well, I was going to say on my radio, but who does that anymore, on my phone. Uh, and I'll listen to it, and boy, I'll begin to sing with it, uh, reading the Bible even. But prayer, prayer is just that there's something about prayer in the life of a believer. And particularly, one man put it this way, that prayer is that single most difficult thing that a Christian engages in. And yet with it, it is also that opportunity we have to come into the very holy place of the Almighty God. Hebrews speaks on this matter. And so this passage in particular, now some would call it the Lord's Prayer, but the Lord didn't pray this prayer. He says there in the scriptures, he said, when you pray, verse number nine, after this manner pray you. So when you're praying, pray like this. In sense, you would call this better than calling it the Lord's Prayer. You call it the model's prayer, or you could even call it the disciple's prayer. And it's made up of two components. The first series of components are the thy petitions. And uh, in keeping with that, the last few components deal with the my petitions. And we spent some time in these thy petitions. There are three of them. He speaks in verse number, verse number uh, uh, 9 and 10 about hallowed be thy name. He speaks then about thy kingdom come and then thy will be done. And of course, we have these recorded. You go back and listen to them. But the emphasis to all three of these is found in this phrase that is given in verse number 10. He said, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. When you think about God and we were to pray about thy will be done, hallowed be thy name, the comparison is how is that hallowed in heaven versus how is it hallowed on earth? How is God's will done on heaven? How is God's will done on earth? And in the reality that we live where we abide on earth, so often we do not hallow God's name in our own life like we will when we're in his presence. So often we do not pray for God's kingdom and his will to be done on earth quite like we will when it's in heaven. And so he starts off this prayer with a direct focus of recognizing God in his holiness, which is his preeminent characteristic trait, recognizing God in his dominion and ability, and then God in his sovereignty, meaning his will is to be done. As I address the throne of God, that's how I want to pray in life. That's how God wants me to pray. He wants to recognize that one of the great distinctions, and there are many between him and me, is that he is always holy. And on my best day, well, we'll look at this in a moment. Paul says, in my flesh dwelleth. No good thing. He wants us to recognize and allow him to rule in our life. 
Yet so often, even on our best days, we want to be the one governing the direction in which our ship is going. I think sometimes the greatest conflict we have as believers is not that which relies outside of our life in a sense of the world and the flesh and the devil. It really is the direction of our heart. Too often our desires we allow, our desires to contrast and to conflict and to pull us out of the will of God in our life. The next set, the my petitions or the our petitions, if you will. We began with these a few weeks ago in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. That's far more than just the sustenance of life. For Matthew chapter 4, the Lord in his temptation said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's a powerful consideration. One of the attributes by which my prayer life should consist of is that I am daily in need of presence of God in my life. I'm daily in need of the truths of scriptures. I'm in daily need to walk with him. And then we come to the second one this morning. And it's quite an interesting one to consider at the onset. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, at a cursory glance, you look at this and say, forgive us our debts. And you would think in that reality that it would seem that the Lord is talking about, uh, forgive us uh, of the fact that we have bought more than we have earned. You might look at that and some might write, buy it, you know, Black Friday, uh, the prayer for Black Friday or something, you know, buyer's remorse. You're in Luke chapter 11. Turn there, if you will, just for a second. This is the parallel passage. Sometimes you'll hear Bible students refer to the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, that's Mark, and it's Luke. And oftentimes you're studying through those. You look at all of them to get a whole picture of them. Because they're describing very often the same identical things. And you can get a full glimpse of it. Now you're in Luke chapter 11. This is, if you will... Uh, this, this model prayer that is given. And, and I want you to notice in verse number two, just to set it, he said uh, in verse number one, there's the impetus. He says, uh, uh, we want us, Lord, to, to, to teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. Verse number two, when you pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread. Note verse four. It's a little bit different. In fact, it might be the greatest distinction between the two. And forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. So when we come back to Matthew chapter number 5 and we're considering this idea of debt, he's not talking about insufficient funds. He really, in a great essence, is talking about the greatest need we have. And that is the fact that we are indeed transgressors of God's law. We are sinners. The psalmist penned it this way. He said, the wicked are estranged from their mother's womb. They go forth as soon as they be born, speaking lies. The fact is, God has provided for our daily bread and our focus is to be on His will and not our own desires. And our desire should be of His kingdom. But the fact is, we are often in debt to a God who has given us so much. And yet we still transgress Him. I'm reminded of a New Testament epistle that's sandwiched between Hebrews and the pastoral epistles. It's a little epistle, some 20 odd verses of Philemon. And in verse number 18 and 19, Paul writing to Philemon he says, if he, that is Onesimus, hath wronged thee or owed thee alt, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with my hand. I will repay. I will repay it. Reminds me so often of how we come short of the glory of God in our daily aspects in life each and every day. All believers, all genuine believers are sinners. Now the fact is, at the moment of salvation, God has saved us 
from the penalty of sin, but that does not mean that we no longer have the capacity to sin. There's a number of words in the scriptures. Let me, let me give you a couple of them. There's a number of the words in the scriptures that de- describe and define what we're speaking of this morning. For instance, in the scriptures, probably most common is the word sin, S-I-N, sin. And this word, it has the idea of missing the mark of God's holiness. In the book of Romans, in chapter 3, you'll find this. For all have, and what's the next phrase? Come short of the glory of God. You've missed the mark. And the reality is you're a sinner. Now, there could be the uh, quality of statement of saying that just because you're a sinner, it doesn't mean that you're the worst sinner. It's true. It doesn't mean that there's not someone that has sinned more egregiously than you. But the fact that there is someone that is far worse of a sinner than you does not remove the necessity and statement that you and I both are sinners. I can remember you think I like to put it in this application. I think of a ball game. If you're down by a point, playing basketball, you know, and you've got just a fraction of a second and you shoot the ball, does it matter if you've missed by 90 feet or 9 inches? No. At the end of the day, the coach is going to say, well... We came up short on that one. That's the idea of sin. You've missed the mark. Isaiah put it this way. He said, all of my righteousness is as filthy rags. It's an amazing consideration for me to behold that at my very best as an individual, I'm short of the glory of God. Another word that's used throughout the New Testament is the idea and the Old Testament of that idea of trespasses. Of trespasses. This has the idea of carelessness in my action. I remember as a fellow, one of the highlights of my youth was to go down off Highway 1 where I grew up and there's just nothing there. My cousins and I, we would tramp through the woods. I don't know where we were. They would say they did. They didn't know where we were. We'd wander and wander and wander and wander and and we'd be in the backside of nowhere. And invariably, we'd cross a dirt road or something, and as soon as we got in that dirt, we'd look back, and, and we'd notice that we had done something wrong. We had trespassed. We did not mean to. But we veered and trampled and romped and frolicked, or whatever descriptive word you want to use there, all across somebody else's land, and they had it posted from the road, but we didn't enter it from the road. Well, there's the idea in the scriptures that we have trespassed. It's the idea of carelessness. It's not necessarily blatant opposition or rebellion, but it nonetheless is still chronicled and classifying, uh, classified as that which is short of God's glory and desire for our life. I think of another word. I think of the word rebellion. We've mentioned transgress, but I think of the word rebellion. This is the idea of blatant conscious failure. For instance, I knew to do good. I had the opportunity to do good. I had the ability to do good, but I chose evil. I did that directly in opposition to what God wanted me to do in my life. Now that's true of King David's life, just like it's true in our life. You remember King David? He was supposed to lead the men lead the armies in victory, but instead he, he looked and he beheld. And knowing what he beheld and the end result thereof would be displeasing with God, what did he do? Went right through with it. Followed up on it. That's blatant rebellion. Now, let's, before we throw him under the bus, isn't that sometimes true in our life? Sometimes... We're careless in our obedience. Sometimes we're just plain old ordinarily rebellious. And of course, then there's a further extreme of sin in the scriptures. I dare not say that a child of God should embrace this lifestyle, but it's lawlessness. Lawlessness. There's many words in the New Testament that come to mind. I think of lasciviousness, licentiousness. What licentiousness That's a good picture word. I know that's not a word you use every day, nor do I. But you can almost hear it in the first part of the word, license. Do you hear it? Licentiousness, license. 
Think of it this way. And lasciviousness and licentiousness are closely related in this thought. It is the idea that one would presume that they have the license to sin. Lawlessness. I dare not say that any child of God should have a licentious life. That anybody that would name the name of Christ would literally look and say, I'm going to engage and follow through with this lifestyle or this thought or this action or this deed in direct and utter, I could care less what God said about it. That's the idea of lawlessness. Now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's an individual there referred to as the lawless one. The scripture knows him as the son of perdition, the Antichrist. The idea is so under the influence of demonic evil will he pursue all things ungodly and holy that he in his heart and mind does not care what the God of heaven says. Many different descriptive words to refer to sin. The simple truth is that we, no matter our outward appearance, you might look like an angel this morning, regardless of our outward appearance, We all have a sin problem, and ultimately that sin problem interrupts our walk with God. You're there in 1 John? Let me show you a passage. 1 John. And and where did I tell you? 1 John chapter 1, I believe. I have it here in the notes, but I I think at best we look at it just for a moment. We were in 1 John chapter 2 and a little bit in chapter 4 this morning, Sunday school hour. I think it would do well for us to look at this. Now, the theme of 1 John... If I was going to give you a theme for the chapter, a theme for chapter, a phrase, if you will, is fellowship with God. That's what it is. And in fact, if you go to 1 John chapter 5, he said these things, this epistle, have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. And then he continues with your relationship and fellowship that you have with God in heaven. In fact, that's how it opens up here in the first few verses. Uh, In verse number 6, he says we have fellowship with him. And walk in darkness, then we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, what does it do? Cleanses us from all sin. Now, notice verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, what happens? We deceive ourselves. As perhaps someone has said, the worst form of deception is when we're self-deceived. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Now isn't this an interesting thing here? In verse 7 he said the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's what the scripture says. Then you come to verse number 8. It says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The reality seems to be that even despite being in the family of God by faith, that's how someone becomes a believer, it's by faith, it's seeing the work, it's turning unto God, it is by faith receiving the free gift, God has saved me from the penalty of sin. But yet, I still dwell in the same body. I still have the same heart. I still have the same mind. I can also have the same tendencies. Now, I told you there's another passage I wanted you to turn to. And that was in Romans chapter 7. So turn there, if you will. We could spend some time and hold your place in Matthew because we're going to go right back there. We could spend some time and talk about experiences. But rather than talk about our experiences, let's look at the scriptures and see Paul's experience. Now, I would say that Paul was a believer. I'll poll you quickly. How many agree with that statement? I'll preach. Why would you say that he was a believer? Because he believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. He wrote to Timothy, his beloved in the faith. This is a uh, faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am chief. He is my Savior. I have believed. I have received So we get the idea that in our imagination that Paul never struggled with sin again in his life. He never had an errant thought. He never reverted back to his 
old ways. He never lost his temper. Well, let's see what he said. Now, in Romans, quite interesting, he opens up chapter 1. And there's about 13, 14, 15, more than a dozen times he talks about I. So he's giving you his personal feeling on the matter. But he does this throughout the book of Romans. I. And when he says I, he's not talking about you. You know what he's talking about? Himself. And God has preserved these words for us. Now, when you and I read them, we feel like it's the I too that he's talking of us. Now, sometimes that Paul says something and he's referring first person to himself and he says, I, or references me, and we need to be very careful. For instance, I think in Philippians where he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is... Now, that's an easy thing to say. But just because you can say something does not mean that it is true. But because Paul said that and it's preserved in the canon of truth which we call the Word of God, it means that that statement was verified by the Holy Ghost as being absolute certain. And Paul was saying, for to me, if you're going to ask Paul's opinion, to live is going to be everything there is about Christ and to die is going to be gain. I think there's a lot of Christians today, I think sometimes even our own heart, when we look at the affairs of this world, we would not say, for to me to live is Christ. Not honestly. So sometimes in these personal expressions, there is commonality, and sometimes there is not. But he uses them over and over again in the epistle of Romans. Starting with chapter 1, I can even think of, verse, of chapter 10 when he talks about salvation. He says, my prayer and my heart's desire for Israel is that they might be saved. That may not be your prayer and heart's desire. By inspiration, that was Paul's prayer and hope and desire. But I want you to look in Romans here in chapter 7 because he's going to list a number of things. And, and Romans 6, 7, and 8 are tethered together. And Romans chapter 6, in a sense, and chapter 7, you have really the believer and his relationship to the law 13 times. In chapter 6, you have the believer and 16 times his relationship to sin. And then when you come to Romans chapter 18, you have a whole host of times in which it's the believer and his relationship to the Spirit of God. Now, keep in Romans chapter 7, and there's a lot here, and I, I'm just going to point out a few things. I want you to look in verse number 14. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, and here's that personal expression. What is it? But I. I think this is one we'll feel simpatico with. He said, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, he's not talking about the fact that he's partially saved. That's not, that's not it. He is saved completely. But there is a level of power of sin that is uh, deepening in its temptation and its influence in life. He continues in verse number 15. For that which I do, I allow not. He said, I wouldn't do it, but I do it. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. You see the conflict there? I know better. I've got the indwelling spirit of God in my life. I've got the word of God. He continues in verse 16. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that is good. Now then is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Isn't that interesting? What did he say? I've been saved completely, but there's still a sin nature that is vivacious within me. Uh, my friend, I think sometimes we get the idea that we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to be perfect. And there can be a level of sinless perfection where we're just on this side of glory robed in white, the epitome of perfection. I hate to tell you this, but you're going to be disappointed. Now, I would say... Rather not perfection, our direction should be aiming that way. The longer I am in him and he is in me, the more my direction of this life should incline precipitously to pleasing him. He continues in verse number 20. Now, if I do that, I would not. 
It is no more I that doeth, but, here's that phrase again, sin that dwelleth in me. Let me just give you a couple more verses here. Look down at verse number 24. And he talks about the warring that occurs in verse 23 against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity, the law of sin which is in my members. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of flesh, of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, that law of sin. Going back to Matthew chapter 5, I want you to understand that's the debt that's being referred to as the Lord gives this illustrational prayer to his disciples. There is a debt. There's an eternal debt that every individual born to the single human race, that is Adam's race, will have to deal with. I inherited a sin nature. But also Romans makes clearly that not only did I inherit it, but I choose to commit sin in my life. I have chosen in the past to lie and to steal and to be dishonest. Those are just some to name a few. I made vain the word or the name of God. And for all of these things, God has placed his wrath upon me. And judgment is to be placed upon me. And I can do all the good in this life that I would hope to do. But remember Isaiah? It's just not good enough. I'm a sinner. At the end of the day, I miss it by 90 feet or 9 inches. I still will miss. But God commended his love towards us. And that while I was yet a, Christ died for me. See, in Christ's death, he paid your penalty. That's judicial speak. Your sentence was set. Hell and the lake of fire was your destiny. You couldn't change it. Death was going to be placed upon you. But God paid that penalty. That's why I love so much 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He that knew no sin became sin for us. You know what that means? He didn't deserve to die. Yet upon him, Isaiah wrote, were placed all the sins. Why? That that which I did not deserve, the righteousness of God, through him he robed me with that. That's imputation. That's why I read that passage out of Philemon. Whatsoever things he owes you, put it on mine account. That is one of the clearest practical truths of the doctrine of imputation that you could possibly find in simple speak. Onesimus wronged you. Onesimus owes you. Onesimus couldn't pay what he owed either. And Paul said, whatever it is, Put it on my account and I'll settle it all. Now Philemon reads that and says, all right, I'll do that. But there's one little part of that verse I didn't read intentionally. Let me scroll up and read it to you. Listen to this. Verse 19, I, Paul, have written with my own hand. I skipped a phrase intentionally. I wanted to circle back to it. He said this, albeit I do not say to thee, how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. Isn't that powerful? Think of that imagery a minute and overlap that with Matthew chapter 5. Notice there in the passage. He says in this passage, verse number 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's so much in this passage dealing with forgiveness and sin, and it's described as debt. I mean, why is it, just by way of a transitional thought, why is it that a child of God could not forgive another that has sinned against them when if they looked to the scope of how God has forgiven them, it's always far greater? A 
debt. We have a continual debt to the Almighty God. You see, the fact of the matter is, He's paid my penalty. But I'll ask you another question. You can, well, don't participate in this, but I think you could. How many of you would say, I've never sinned since the day I got saved? That's a powerful fault to consider. Do you realize that God paid for all of those debts too? That's why Romans chapter 6, he said we shouldn't live in sin that grace may abound. Don't live a wayward life just because God would pay for it. Don't live in that licentious manner. But the result abiding in you and I, in our mind, and our heart, and in essence, it does only poor things. It will give you some things to consider. For instance, sin in our life, it dominates our mind and heart. What do you mean by that? Because of its presence, that's part of the matter of temptation in our life. It's why so often as a Christian, we have to put on the mind of Christ. It's as a believer that we have to have our thoughts conform to the thoughts of the Almighty God. It doesn't come naturally. If you as an individual think naturally, you can almost guarantee you're not thinking like God wants you to think. He wants you to think supernaturally according to His Word and truth. Sin in our life, it has a degenerative power. You want to know why there's disease and sickness and illness? You want to know why practically there's diseases, emotionally there's unhappiness, and eternally there's death? It goes back to sin. Sin has a way of directing our actions. It's the common baseline of every evil committed. Sin is deadly. There's no human cure to it. Jeremiah the prophet, 13th chapter, asks, Can the leopard change his spots? What's the answer? No. And sin is defiling in every aspect of life. It is ruinous. And we as a child of God, as I've attempted to stipulate, we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ if we have put our faith and trust in Him. We're no longer condemned. We're no longer under His judgment. We're no longer destined for hell or the lake of fire. There's no one thing that anyone could bring as a soteriological attack against God's elect. That's Romans chapter 8 because he concludes nothing in earth, in heaven, and under earth that can separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. Yet as this passage is written, believer, it's interesting that we are still in need of a daily commitment and they call a forgiveness to the God of heaven. That's the question one way. How many of you have never sinned since the morning you got saved? That's a hard question to, well, it's an embarrassing question to answer. It's really what it is, isn't it? It's a number of sins. Likely we're all guilty of the sin of murmuring and complaining. And I, I will tell you, it's such an easy thing to do. Matter of fact, I might would say it comes natural to me. Does it come natural to you? Do you realize that one day God killed over 20,000 people for it? It was over the murmuring, complaining that God sent poisonous, venomous serpents among his people. Needless to say, you want to talk of all the things God hates? God hates murmuring and complaining. That's one that we often just can't get off our plate. Now, I would note there's a cure to it. You know what the cure to murmuring and complaining is? Thankfulness. It is, isn't it, so much easier to complain than to be thankful? It's a sin to murmur and complain. The Scripture talks about anger. It said, be angry and there's a lot of sin often accompanied with anger. Covetousness, Colossians chapter 3, which is the sin of idolatry. So often with Christians, we'd be covetous. Want stuff outside the will of God. Want stuff against the will of God. Lying. 
bitterness, evil thinking. I like that passage in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, let all uh, malice be put away from you. With all wrath, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed to the day of redemption. No, we should not abound in sin or continue in sin that grace may abound. We should seek all in our life fellowship that comes only through God's forgiveness. Forgiveness is a prominent topic in this passage. In fact, if you're in Matthew chapter 6, I've highlighted a few of them, but notice verse number 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Drop your eyes down to verse number 14. If you forgive men your trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. For if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do you see forgiveness saturated in these verses? You see, there's a great devastation that sin, continued sin, does in the life of a believer. We can talk about the fact that it does not jeopardize our status as a child of God. But that does not mean that these continual sins do not impair our Christian walk with God. They do. Seems obvious to me in the first place is it impairs my prayer life. Why is it so often that Christians, we struggle with prayer? It's because prayer really takes either the prayer of forgiveness or a heart that has forgiven, has been forgiven, to engage in. The psalmist put it this way in the 66th Psalm. If I regard iniquity in my heart, what does he say? I won't hear you. Not hear you. Need we be it any more explicitly clear? Well, preacher, that's in the Psalms. And that's the Old Testament. And that's not applicable for today. Well, let me read you what Peter wrote. 1 Peter chapter 3. He deals with the husband and wife relationship. But in a greater sense, you can make this applicable to relationship among believers. He said, husbands, do well with your wives according to knowledge. Do you remember the next phrase? That your prayers be not hindered. You see, failing to forgive your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ, having that type of alt with other children of God, is sin. And one of the first ways that it impacts you it obstructs faithful prayer life. I think prayer in our life not only affects our prayer life, but it also robs us of our joy. I think of the book of Proverbs, the 21 chapter, he says, The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. Joy is the gift of the Holy Spirit of God in our life to those that have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had overwhelming joy in a prison. You know, sometimes the reasons why you and I do not have the joy of God in our life is because there's unconfessed sin. And it's robbed us of that joy. Sin in our life as believers, it takes away our effectiveness. I think of Philippians chapter 2, he admonishes to be lights in a crooked and perverse generation. Well, if I'm engaging in sin systematically and regularly in life, and it's unconfessed before God, I am not going to be able to shine as a light in this crooked, perverse generation. I'll just be a lighter resemblance of the darkness that's around me. I think sin in our life, and this is a powerful one here, it makes me vulnerable to other sins. We talk about kinds reproducing kinds. Two dogs have a puppy. Two rabbits have a little kit rabbit. Two cats have a kitten. You with me? A Christian sits and imbibes themselves in sin. You know what the production is? More sin. That's how it works. They talk about the original sin being pride, but... The Lord said in Proverbs chapter 6, a proud look, lying lips, hands that shed uh, blood, innocent blood, and feet that goeth about spreading mischief. 
All of that's an abomination. And I would know how often sometimes that is intermingled together. Ultimately, sin is always ruinous to the will of God. This is why the truth is present in this, my petition. It says here in verse 12, and forgive us our debts. I need a constant walk with God of confession with even the sin and the minuteness that thanksgiving may abound, that joy may be abounding, that peace might be abounding, that my relationship with other believers might flourish as it ought to flourish. You know, if you were to jump ahead about 13, 12, 13 chapters, you come to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is a wonderful text. We often use it in relationship to church discipline. You think about it that way. But the scripture said, if thy brother offend thee, what do you do? You go to thy brother. If you will not hear you, take a witness. Bring the matter for the church. And I always marvel at that last part, verse 21 and 22. Then Peter said, if my brother offend me seven times, ought I to forgive him? Do you remember the answer? Forgiveness has got to be a way of life for believers. It ought to in our heart be a beautiful thing in which we glorify God that we can forgive those that have trespassed against us. Every day in our life. The forgiveness of our trespasses and the willingness to forgive those because they are sinners also and because they are sinners they also possess the capacity to sin against me. That's the way it works. The Lord's writing a little bit like the Apostle Paul did. Oh, Nesmus has sinned against you, put it on my account. And don't forget how much you owe me. I'm not even going to say anything about it. The Lord God takes that same perspective. What about the sins you've committed? Now put that in the scope of how others have sinned against you. You know, our our ability to forgive is directly linked, as we looked at just a moment ago, with our ability to ask forgiveness of God. You know, I've got a number of things here, and I I know my time's gone, but I want to read them to you. Let me give you some reasons why you and I ought to be willing to forgive other believers. Right, I'm a hurry. Think, because it is the character of the righteousness of, of God. You remember 2 Corinthians? Became no sin that we might become the righteous of God in Him. One of the marks of God's righteousness, one of the marks of righteousness as a whole, one of the behaviors that you would come through the scriptures of understanding is that a righteous God forgives. So the children of that righteous God ought also to forgive. As a child of God, I am to put on the mind of Christ. And even if I look at the Lord Jesus Christ and consider these matters, I should consider the fact that even he loved his own enemies. Therefore, because of the character of righteousness that dwells in me, I must therefore be willing to forgive. The character of righteousness. I think number two is the, the Christ-like example. Ephesians 4, verse 32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted. What's that next phrase? Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. It's the example Christ has left. You know, we, <clears throat> we talk about what would Jesus do? Well, he forgave. He forgave. Number three, I need to forgive because of a consciousness of guilt. I don't like guilt very much in life. You want to be free from guilt and the interference of peace and have satisfaction in life? Be at peace with God and man? Forgiving one another. I need to forgive because I am wary of the chastening hand of God. God is offended at our disobedience. Unrepented sins bring consequences. I remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the passage that we go to when we're observing the Lord's table. And he talks about examining yourselves. 
And he makes this statement. He said, for many do sleep and are sick among you. He's not talking about you dozed in church. That's not what he's talking about. He says, many of you died a premature death because of your behavior. That's the same thing that happened to Ananias and Sapphire. They had a premature death that was a consequence of sin. Theologically, you can't add years to your life. But absolute theological truth is you can trim years off your life. Because I'm afraid of the chastening hand of a thrice holy God. That ought to motivate me to forgive. Let me give you a fifth one. I ought to be willing to forgive because it constricts true worship. Years ago I had a fellow come to me. And we had a mutual friend and this mutual friend had sinned grievously. And not against us, against someone else. And uh, he had never repented of it. He had never even tried to get it right. And instead he had, he had taken the victimhood mentality that it was really his fault. And so his friend that called me begins talking to him. He said, yeah, he said, it really isn't his fault. And I said, what? He said, yeah, I know that his response wasn't right, but it wasn't really his fault. It was the other party's fault. And I've just come to understand that, and I, th- I think that you need to as well. And I said, did he ever make it right with the person that he wronged? And he goes, well, no. And this is the passage I often think about. Matthew chapter 5. You're in chapter 6. Look over there in chapter 5. Here's something quite interesting. Notice verse 23. You want to know what unconfessed sin does to your life? Even an unconfessed sin of an unwillingness to forgive? Look in verse 23. Therefore, I'm in chapter 5, verse 23. Therefore, if thou bringest thy gift to the altar, you've come to worship God. And there, at the altar, rememberest that thy brother has ought against thee. Leave thy gift before the altar. Go thy way. Be reconciled to thy brother. And then what? Do you think God put those words in an unnecessary order? Do you think he meant it, what he said? God, listen folks, God so esteems the doctrine of personal forgiveness at such a high rate. Listen to what he said. He knows all. He said, if there comes this level of offense between two brethren, I'm not a bit interested in what you can do for me. Go make right with thy brother. And then do what? Come and offer thy gift. You know, we talk about ineffectiveness. We talk about prayerlessness. We talk of these things. And yet there are Christians so often that just have such levels of deep bitterness, unresolved issues in their life, in part because someone has not forgiven them, in part because they have not sought forgiveness, but a lot of it can come down to interpersonal relationships and somehow we've just taken the thought, you know what, I'll just shushle that under the rug and I'll cover it up and it doesn't really matter. We may even bring peace to ourselves and say, only God knows. I'm going to tell you something, that statement's true and He cares. You want to know why churches are disjointed? I mean good Bible-believing churches are disjointed. While God's not working in one sense as He used to work, as some would say. While there's not a fervor for the things of God. Sometimes it's not complex at all. It's simply the matter of unresolved issues. And God said if you're going to bring it before the altar and you remember you have this, stop! Go back and make it right. And then bring me your gift. That ought to be part of my daily prayer life. Such a grand consideration of who God is and how he's forgiven me. It's even said over in Timothy that the man of God must be easy to be entreated. 
You know what that means? Easy to talk to. Approachable. Level of humility. Not going to respond with heavy hand. That's how God wants us all to be. You know, there's some believers that haven't sinned necessarily or doesn't have unresolved conflict with another believer. But deep in their life, they've got a sin and that's restricting that fellowship with God. They've never confessed it before Him. Puritan preacher of many years ago, Thomas, Thomas Manton wrote this. It's applicable then. I, I think there's a good level of truth in it today. There is none so tender. There is none so tender to others as they which have received mercy themselves. For they know how gently God hath dealt with them. A one of the scriptures implores us in chapter 6. Verse 12. Forgive us our debts. Our sins. As we forgive our debtors. In closing, let me ask you a question. With that continual sin that you may be struggling with in your life, as you go to the Lord in prayer, how do you want Him to treat you? How has He treated you? In seeking to have communion with your God, He beats you over the head about your transgressions. I'm not saying that in a sense to minimize sin. I'm trying to say this in a way to maximize the perception of God's forgiveness to us. That ought to be our attitude of forgiveness as well. And to the disciples, the Lord said, this is how I want you to pray. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.